Well, do have your Bibles to hand. Uh, we're going to be reading, Jilly. Sam's going to come up to read to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and then Mark's going to come and preach to us. Thanks, Jill. The reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and it's on page 670 in the Church Bibles. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied nothing my eyes desired. I, I denied nothing. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Thanks, Jill. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. And uh, I'd encourage you to keep that passage open as we look at this uh, next little bit in uh, Ecclesiastes together. Um, Should we come and pray as we look at it now? (coughs) Heavenly Father, we prayed at the beginning of the service uh, in our confession. I repeat those words again, Lord, what we do not know, we pray that by your grace you would reveal to us. And what we do know, we pray that you would confirm deeper within our hearts, that you would help us from this passage to understand more and more the meaning and purpose of our lives, and that we would leave here with a real sense that you created us for a purpose, and we would understand what that purpose is. So please open our eyes to see the amazing truths that are found in this passage of scripture, and uh, we pray for your help as we look at it together now. Amen. Well, uh, if you were here last week, we started a new series looking at this uh, rather puzzling book of Ecclesiastes, and I introduced us to some of the early 
verses in this book. It's a slightly bizarre way of starting a book where you want people to read and you start off with kind of your Eeyore moment. Um, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What's the point in reading a book that's meaningless? And um, we had a, a go at beginning to get into the book last week. Uh, do you remember though, I tried to help us to see what that word meaningless means in Ecclesiastes. I had a bubble machine here at the front and I was firing bubbles out over the church. And those of you who could reach them, do you remember, you were grabbing hold of the bubbles. Bubbles that you could see, bubbles that you could touch, bubbles that were real. But as you grabbed hold of them, they disappeared. And that I was helping us to see is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes means by that word meaningless. Not pointless, but never satisfying. It's like vapour, kind of like breath. Uh, I showed us a couple of passages, one in, uh, in one of the Psalms, where the psalmist translates the word meaningless from Ecclesiastes in exactly the same way. Exactly the same word, but he uses the phrase breath. That's what meaningless means. Breathiness. It's there, you snatch hold of it and it's gone. And then a similar word that's used uh, but translated into a different language in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, that familiar passage uh, in Romans chapter 8 where the writer speaks of the frustration of living in our world, in a broken world. It's the same word, the meaningless. So that's what we were trying to begin to look at last week. Uh, Do you remember this little picture? I said one of the big problems that the writer to the um, uh, writer of Ecclesiastes addresses is that most human beings will live life on the horizontal. All that I can see and touch and feel is all that there is. And I was saying, actually, the book of Ecclesiastes tries to lift our head outside of that little horizontal sphere to a God who made you and me. A God who created us for a purpose. And it's only when we lift our heads up and see the God who created us for a purpose that we can be freed from ourselves, caught up in that which we can understand and only that. And then these were the three things we looked at. And they were quite frustrating, but it was a frustrating book. Um, the writer is saying, I can't make sense of everything. And I'm sure that resonates with your heart. It definitely does with mine. But there was that reassurance, wasn't there, in chapter one, that God can make sense of a broken, messed up world. But then the slightly difficult uh, fall back to earth again. Even if I have a God-given perspective, I still can't make perfect sense of the frustrations of this life. So it's a very puzzling book, and we're going to begin to dig a bit more deeply into this book. And today we're going to look at the subject of pleasure. Don't know if you remember where we ended up last week. We ended in chapter 1, verse 18. If you've got it there, have a look. The writer really is pretty frustrated because he's saying, With much wisdom comes much sorrow, and more knowledge the more grief. So he's saying, I could have lived my life foolishly, but I chose to go the path of wisdom. But even when I chose wisdom... Life wasn't easy and didn't always work out. So what's the point in being wise if being wise or being a fool, you all end up in the same place, living in a broken, frustrated world? Well, that same phrase from chapter 118 goes on in in chapter 2, verses 12 onwards, which we're not going to look at in detail. But you can read as the writer begins to um, tease those things out a bit more. But we're going to focus this morning on chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Let me read from verse 1. He said to himself, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but this also proved to be meaningless. Keep thinking bubbles, vapour, breath, it's there but it's gone. Okay? Laughter, he says, verse 2, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Now remember all the time that the context of what this writer is doing. He's seeking meaning in his life. He's saying, if I strip everything away, 
What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here on this earth? What is the meaning of my existence? So he's, he's asking really fundamental questions about his life. And what he says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the punchline at the beginning, and then we'll understand why. The punchline he gives in this little chapter is, Pleasure will give you and give me enjoyment, but it will never give us meaning. Pleasure will give us enjoyment, but it will never give us meaning. So you see in verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. This probably isn't excessive indulgence and drunkenness. He's just enjoying drinking alcohol and having some fun. But he's trying to be discerning. He's trying to look um, beyond pleasure, saying at the end of the day, where does this lead me? If I have that great night out, where does it ultimately leave me? Because at some point I've got to come home again and the night will end. He says, I want to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So this is uh, another invitation from the writer to enter into his world. Remember I said last week, the world to the writer of Ecclesiastes is not linear. A plus B equals C. It's circular. Life is messy. Life is full of frustrations. Uh, And we have to try and understand our life in the midst of the struggles and frustrations that we live in. But he's asking us to enter into his world. And we're just going to look at these things together. Three short affirmations this passage gives us. Uh, Two warnings and then one conclusion. So here's the first affirmation. It may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I think the writer would say this. Listen, pleasure is a gift from God. Enjoy it. Have a think about that. If you're a Christian here today, um, I suspect if I was to use the phrase um, materialism or hedonism, it would have automatic, very negative connotations for you because you will know from your own experience in life, or certainly if you've watched other people, uh, the problems of excess in these areas. So you think of materialism, you think of consumerism, it's all bad. And there's a danger as a Christian that you therefore think that everything that is pleasurable is bad. But actually that's not what the writer says at all. There's a danger that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and just because there is excess, hedonistic excess or materialistic excess, we assume that everything material is bad. But what does Paul write uh, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6? He says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. God is a good God and he gives us many, many good things which he wants us to enjoy. I think this week of that little phrase where Jesus is teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, And he says, as part of teaching them how to pray, um, give us today our daily bread. Now, the fundamental, most basic level, that is teaching us to ask God in dependence to provide for our every need day by day. But I'm sure there's more going on than simply a God who sustains us functionally. As God sustains us day by day, doesn't he also not bless us day by day with many good things? I'll give you an example. The other day I come down uh, to breakfast and in the space of five minutes, reflecting on it, I know I screwed up a number of times. I came down and I got really cross that I had to empty the dishwasher again. Every day I have to empty it. I then got cross that I had to go into the garage to get another pint of milk because the milk in the fridge had run out. I then got cross that my legs were aching from the run I'd done the day before. And then I got even more cross because I left one of the lights on overnight. You stop and think about that for a minute. I have a dishwasher. I have a garage with extra milk in it. I have a body that at the moment can run and is fit. 
I have the ability to turn on the light. And in the space of five minutes when I come down in the morning, all these blessings that God had given me, I turned into negative things. Time after time I got frustrated with good things that God had given me. I think one of the graces of being a Christian is learning to see the good things that God gives us and learning to have a lifestyle of thankfulness. Um, I came across this this week. You know the the Latin phrase, um, carpe diem? Um, It was a a phrase, I believe, that was coined by the Roman poet Horace. Uh, I think the the phrase has been slightly hijacked today by kind of adrenaline junkies who kind of jump out of an aeroplane from a crazy height and uh, and screaming out carpe diem. Uh, The idea of seize the day. My life is very short, so I've got to pack as much pleasure into it as possible. But actually, the literal phrase or meaning of carpe diem is literally pluck the day. It's the idea that you've got a tree full of beautiful fruit, and the fruit is there to be plucked. So you take a nice piece of fruit and you eat it. The original use of that word by the poet Horace is about enjoying good things today. Not worrying about yesterday or tomorrow, but enjoying good things today because the fruit is there. Take it and enjoy it. And I think as Christians, we could all spend a bit of time perhaps trying to develop a culture of thankfulness amongst ourselves for the many good things that God gives us. But notice the second affirmation you get in this passage. Um, pursuing pleasure helps us to reflect God. That might be a bit puzzling to some of us as we think about that. Think about God who created us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it says he created us in his image. I guess fundamental and right at the centre of what that means is that you and I were created for relationship with a relational God, Father, Son and Spirit. But I believe that being created in his image is more than simply being created for relationship. God is also a very creative God. And when you and I appreciate creativity, or when you express your creativity, that is part of the way that you can be an image bearer. That you can carry the image of God. So if you look down in our passage, yes, this person who has great means goes after many things. And yes, there is excess there. Yes, there is hedonism. Yes, there is behaviour that's not honouring to God. But we've got to be aware of only seeing this in the negative. Because do you see all the pictures of joy of the joy of creativity that the writer experiences. Do you see in verse 4, he's enjoying architecture and botany. He says in verse 5, he's enjoying all kinds of fruit trees. Does that remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? Where there was abundance, all kinds of fruit trees. He's enjoying landscaping, he's enjoying agriculture, verse 6. He's enjoying appreciating beauty, verse 8. So what seems to be suggested here is that all the different acts of creativity that you enjoy in your life or that you yourself do is in part a way that you can express the fact that you were created in the image of God. Uh, Many of you will have heard of the the Buckingham Open Studios Uh, earlier in the summer. People all around Buckinghamshire opened up their homes and if if you're into pottery or into making jewellery or artwork, you displayed your creativity and people could come. Now I'm not really into art or pottery or jewellery. But I appreciated going to a number of these open days with Steph and just enjoying other people's creativity. And we actually ended up buying a bit of jewellery and buying a bit of pottery as we listened to the stories of the people who created them. And as we appreciated their creativity, we wanted to support them and also appreciated what they had created. So actually at a very fundamental level, as you express creativity in your own life or you enjoy creativity... It's in part a little way that you can image God. I think that's a wonderful thing. But I suspect we don't think about that sort of thing very often. 
And here's the third thing. I think the, the writer would challenge us to enjoy pleasure even though it's broken. Everything in the world is broken post the fall in Genesis 3 where mankind turned their back on God. Our hearts have this great fracture inside them. Our world is broken. Every good thing is not as good as it once was and not as good as it one day will be. But it doesn't mean that there's nothing that is good. And it doesn't mean there's not good things in broken good. Here's something that's puzzled me this week. You read in verse 1, pleasure proved to be meaningless. And yet you read on in Ecclesiastes and the writer seems to commend pleasure. It's rather bizarre. He says, have a look at chapter 2, verse 24. A man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 15. The writer says, I commend the enjoyment of life. And have a look at chapter 9, verse 7. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. So he's able to say right at the beginning, pleasure is meaningless. But later on he says, but pursue pleasure. It's bizarre. It's one of these paradoxes that we looked at last week. The teacher knows that the world is broken. The teacher knows that pleasure is still broken. But that doesn't mean we should not pursue it. It doesn't mean that we cannot enjoy good things in a broken world. So there's three things to affirm. Pleasure is a gift from God. Enjoy it. Pleasure is a way of reflecting the creativity of God. Do it. And enjoy pleasure even though it's broken. But let's have a look at a couple of warnings. And this is what we started with really. And I think this is really the heart of this particular chapter. Pleasure will bring you and me enjoyment. But it will never bring meaning. Remember the the teacher, the writer is on a quest for meaning. What is the purpose of my life? Strip it all away. What's the point of my life? He wants meaning, not pleasure. And he's just seeing whether pleasure gives him meaning. We'll have a look at verses 9 and 10. Because here this teacher is very great. He says, verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So he has great, he has great greatness. He also has great acquisition. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He had tons of money. He had means. So he went after everything he thought would give him pleasure. And he had enjoyment. Look at the second half of verse 10. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. So he's saying, despite the greatness that I've achieved, despite all the acquisitions that I've made, despite the enjoyment that these things do give me, he still lacks meaning. What's the point of it all? Verse 11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what, had, um, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Think of the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger there in the middle. Reportedly worth $360 million. He's got it all. But look at the lyrics in one of the famous songs that Rolling Stones wrote. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. It's just popular culture. Here's a guy who's got everything. He's done what the writer's done. He's pursued pleasure. In itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But it hasn't given him meaning. He's got $360 million in the bank. 
But he can still write in the lyrics of a song, I still haven't got meaning. You go back to the children's talk that Wellesley was uh, speaking about earlier. I really encourage you with your bucket list. Go after the things that you love. It's a great thing to do. Travel, have holidays, experience nice things. They're good things to do. But if you're a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to do this. Relativize your bucket list. Because you and I will know that pleasure fades with time, doesn't it? You get that new thing that's absolutely amazing. You set your heart on it. It's a wonderful thing. But a few weeks later, it's pretty old, and you put it in the cupboard, and you want the next new thing. It doesn't mean that good thing was not good, but it does mean that good thing would never give you pleasure. Uh, it would never give you meaning. But here's the glory, I think, of being a Christian. When you are lifted by God from the horizontal, only seeing what you see and understanding what you see and understand, and you lift your eyes to a good God who gives you good things, he gives meaning to all the good things that you enjoy. Without him, those things will eat you alive because they'll never give you the sense of purpose that you really are after. I'll tell you a story. When I was at Bible college, I remember sitting uh, on the beautiful grounds that we were there. I was talking to my, uh, one of my best mates, James. Uh, I was feeling slightly sorry for myself because we were just describing what life might be like once we entered into ministry. I was a teacher in a good school, I had a good job, great opportunities to travel the world, playing sport and coaching sport and have a great life. And it would have been great. He was um, an agent for sports people. And he was meeting all these famous people and getting paid well for doing it. And I remember saying, I'm going to miss out a bit. I'm not going to do all the things I could have done if I kept teaching. And he was going to miss out. But I remember he looked me in the eye, and I've never forgotten it. He said to me, Mark, you'll never ever lose out. Because even if there's some things in this life that you long to do that you don't do, one day you will do them. And guess what? They'll be even better than what you could have experienced in this life. Because this life is not all that there is. And I've never ever forgotten that. It doesn't mean I won't go and have a holiday, I won't pursue pleasure, but there's a lot of things that I will not do, but I'm not utterly gutted because I know one day I will do those things. And I'll do them perfectly and they'll be wonderful. Do you know that verse that we looked at last week in chapter 3 verse 11? God has set eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? It means that only that which is eternal can really, really give you and me meaning. And building heaven on earth was never created, would never, would never be a means for creating meaning in your life. And that is why the bigger house you have, the bigger car you have, the bigger ba- bank account that you have, you're never ultimately satisfied because there's always someone with a bigger house. There's always someone with a nicer car. There's always someone with more money. Pleasure is not a bad thing. It gives you enjoyment. But it never gives us meaning. And here's a, here's a last thing for you to think about. Um, I don't know if this is a, really a warning, but I guess it, a gentle warning to myself and to you. I just encourage us as a church family, let's be people who seek pleasures that bless other people. I don't know if you notice in the reading, uh, this teacher, when he was pursuing pleasure, did it in a very self-centered way. This wasn't kind of philanthropy, using his wealth to be a blessing to others. It wasn't uh, public service. It was pure, what can I do to build heaven on earth? 25 times in 11 verses, you get the phrase, I or my or mine. I acquired, I bought, I made, I amassed. The writer is pursuing his own gain. But for you and I, maybe we can take a warning from this, because it didn't satisfy. How can we pursue pleasures 
but pleasures that others will benefit from too. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, If for you, one of the great pleasures of your life is your family, being together around a table, laughing, having wonderful holidays, what could you do as a family perhaps to be a blessing to someone who doesn't have that sort of a family or spends an awful lot of time on their own? Pursue pleasure, but do it for the benefit of others as well. That's a really simple thing. Uh, if you're particularly wealthy and you enjoy certain pleasures, which you really get a lot of pleasure from, perhaps it's eating out regularly, it's something you have the ability to do and you really enjoy it. Keep doing it, it's a wonderful thing. But what could you do to enable somebody else who never gets to do that to do it? Could you give them some money so they can enjoy your favourite restaurant? Or could you invite them to come with you? But you pick up the bill. Just again, a really practical way. Here's something that I really enjoy. Well, how can I use that but be a blessing to other people at the same time? Uh, Perhaps the simplest thing, and I would encourage us, the simple pleasures are actually the easiest ones to share. Just opening up our homes, opening up our lives, whether it's a cup of tea or a really simple meal, just opening up our lives and sharing our lives with other people. Remember, when, when you do hospitality, when you invite people into your home, you're not doing it to impress them. You're doing it to bless them. It doesn't have to be an elaborate meal where you compete with your neighbour. Just cook the meal you would have cooked for yourself. Cook it a bit more and invite some friends to enjoy it with you. I think that's a really healthy principle of how, as as Christians, we can enjoy the good gifts of God, but enjoy them in a way that others can benefit from them too, not just for ourselves. As we come to a conclusion, I guess this is pretty obvious. You probably saw where this was heading, but I want to show you why I am convinced that this is true. The conclusion that the writer begins to get to in this chapter, and ultimately will get to in chapter 12, in a few weeks' time, is this meaningful pleasure, in other words, pleasure that gives you meaning, not just enjoyment, can only be found in God. Uh, Up at Elm Tree, Steph and I have planted a little uh, garden um, to grow vegetables. Uh, We're not uh, big into this, we've not really done it before, we thought we'd have a crack. And we have got some courgettes that are growing and it's great fun. Now where we've planted courgettes, we can now reap courgettes. But if I went to the other side of the garden where there are flowers and I was looking for courgettes, I wouldn't find any. It's pretty obvious. Why? Because I planted courgettes in the courgette patch, not in the flower bed. So where we sow, we reap. Well, have a think about where the God of the universe who created everything sowed meaning. Because you and I will never reap meaning in a place that's different to where he sowed it. If he sowed meaning in pleasure, then reap as much meaning as you can from pleasure, but you never will. You'll, you'll reap enjoyment from pleasure, but not meaning. Where's he sown meaning? He's sown meaning in your heart. God has set eternity in our hearts. He's sown meaning in being in a relationship with him. And what the Bible ultimately teaches, and we're going to see this very strongly in chapter 12 in a few weeks, is that ultimately the true sense of meaning that he has sown in our hearts is found through obedience to him. And that's really counterintuitive, isn't it? People think, well, if I'm obedient to God and I do what he tells me, it's going to stop me enjoying all the pleasures of my life. It's why in in Psalm 2, those who shake their fists defiantly at God say, let me break off God's shackles. I want to be free. But they're not actually free at all. Listen to the words of Jesus, who said in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, Jesus is saying, the place where I find my true satisfaction and joy, my meaning, my food, is being obedient to my heavenly father. 
What he's getting at is actually the greatest source for any of our joy and satisfaction and meaning comes through a relationship with God. I'm sure you're familiar with those words in Hebrews chapter 12. These are very counterintuitive too. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. How on earth was there joy before Jesus when he knew he was going to a cross to be tortured and to lose his life? Where was the joy in all of that? The joy wasn't in being on the cross. The joy was in what the cross would achieve. Because as Jesus Christ went to the cross, he freed you and me from ourselves. From this constant quest to live horizontally. All that I can see, all that I can understand is all there is. He freed us from that to lift our heads to see that there is a God. A God who loves us, a God who wants us to know him. A God who is the source of all meaning and joy. The cross also frees us from seeking meaning in pleasures that were never created to give you meaning. They give you enjoyment, but not meaning. And the cross also enables us to be forgiven and have a fresh start. If we've lived our whole life living for pleasure, Jesus died that you can be freed from living for pleasure so that you can live for God. And here's the irony, the more you live for God, the more you'll enjoy his pleasure. Because he's a God who knows you, who made you, and knows what is best for you. So as we close, I just want to leave you with these last final thoughts. Friends, it's only through a relationship with God that you will find deep and lasting meaning for your life. But through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is available to every single one of us if we take hold of it for ourselves. God is the source of our meaning and he gives meaning to our pleasure. Amen. We're going to stand and sing in Christ alone when we recognise that meaning in life is found nowhere else, then what a wonderful thing that we can stand together and celebrate that there is meaning and it's found in Christ and Christ alone. So let's stand together and belt out what's a wonderful hymn. Do take a seat. I just want to read the last verse of our reading out, verse 11 of chapter 2. For when I surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father, there is no ultimate meaning. There is no ultimate satisfaction outside of Christ. We thank you for your wonderful love for this world. Thank you that the Lord Jesus broke into this world. He became flesh to bring us back into relationship with the living God, to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to give us joy, to give us a satisfaction that will not pop like a bubble, but will last forever. Thank you that the Lord Jesus died on a cross bearing the wrath of God that we might be forgiven and restored to you. Thank you that darkness could not hold him. Thank you that the chains of death were broken as the Lord Jesus rose to new life. Thank you that there is a world beyond this one that he's opened up for his people. A world that will surpass this one in every respect. Thank you that you're a God who is concerned about pleasure and life and joy. And thank you that you've given access to us.
to all these things in the person of your son. Thank you for an opportunity to think about these things this morning. And Lord, as we move through this week, as we head off into our own individual worlds, as we enjoy life, as we enjoy the good things that you've given us, Lord, help us to never divide those things from the wonderful giver of them. Help us to live thankful lives, joy-filled lives, and lives which give others in this world a taste of something of the goodness of what it means to know and love Jesus and be found in him on that final day. And we pray all these things for his glory. Amen.